Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 19th, Friday the 19th, or at the end of another eventful week in American history. Two stories have caught most of our attention this week. The first is the death of Rush Limbaugh and his legacy of venom, at least according to the New York Times on America. And of course, the second is what's happening in Texas, the crisis of public infrastructure, the breaking down of their water system, uh, the the collapse of the, the, the Texan healthcare system, and the subsequent story about the way in which what's happening in Texas has affected minority neighborhoods, particularly African-Americans, worse than, than white neighborhoods, although everyone seems to be affected. So one of the things I like to do, at least in this show, is join the dots, the dots between Limbaugh and this crisis of public infrastructure in Texas uh, and in America generally. And one person uh, who is very good at joining these dots is my guest today. She's the author of an amazing new book. It's the talk of the town. It's everywhere, ubiquitous. I'm amazed she 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 has the time to come on our show. It's a book called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together uh, by uh, a remarkable uh, writer and thinker, Heather McGee. Uh, Heather, I gave you a good intro, so you better live up to that. Uh, Join the dots between the death of Limbo and this crisis of public infrastructure in Texas. So the United States used to have the infrastructure that was the envy of the world, right? We had these great public works, this interstate highway system. We had, you know, big, big public works like the Hoover Dam and the Tennessee Valley Authority. And now we have, you know, poison pipes in Flint, uh, a grid in Texas that can't handle a winter storm. Um, you know, we don't have high-speed rail. We don't have universal health care. We have one of the worst in the developed world uh, pandemic responses. What happened is really the story that I set out to try to un to piece together uh, in my journey to write The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And I'm so glad you brought up uh, dear, dear Departed Rush Limbaugh because the story that he told uh, in his incredibly popular right-wing radio show for a generation really, mainly to a white audience, is The Link. He sold this zero-sum story, the idea that progress for people of color uh, had to come at the expense of white people, and therefore the institutions that were seen as championing the cause of racial justice after the civil rights movement, those institutions were the government, particularly the federal government and labor unions should be distrusted by white people. And white people in the United States should become more conservative. And that's exactly what happened. And so Texas is a terrible ongoing tragedy of an example of when 
racism drains the pool. I talk about that in my book, the public swimming pools that used to dot the American landscape, many of which were segregated until the late 1950s. White communities' response to the desegregation of the civil rights movement was to drain their public pools, to turn away from government. Um, and of course, that meant that everybody lost out. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a Try Before You Buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keen on for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash Keenon. We'll come back to this image of pools. I even got one for the show. I stole it from someone uh, on the internet. Uh, please don't arrest me. But um, it was actually from the mid-century. We can't get images of public pools now because there aren't any. Uh, mm. Let's go back to Limbaugh. Uh, Heather, you quote him in the book. Uh, here's Limbaugh on Obama. Obama had a plan. Obama's plan is based on in his in inherent belief that this country was immorally and illegitimately founded by a very small minority of white Europeans who screwed everyone else since the founding to get all the money and all the goodies, and it's about time that the scales were made even. It's always been the other way around. This is just payback. This is how does it feel time. Um, mm. You use this image, or I don't know if it's a metaphor or an economic theory of the zero-sum game it seems like while you're critical of the idea of the zero sum, you believe that people like Limbaugh were kind of born into it and popularized the notion of zero sum. Of course, Trump uh, 
has articulated that uh, in, in very much in, in, in limbo-like terms for the last four years. What is it about zero sum that is so central to your argument? Zero sum is the idea that a dollar in the pocket of black and brown Americans means a dollar less in the pocket of white Americans. It's what causes white Americans to cheer the denial of benefits to people that they see as their competition, even if those benefits would help themselves as well. They're, this zero-sum worldview is actually quite prevalent among white Americans, according to social scientists. And I went back in the book to look at, you know, where did it come from? Why do we not feel like we're all on the same team? How is it that white Americans are sort of cheering the degradation and the loss of the same formula that built the white American middle class, massive government subsidies and investments in economic security from the Homestead Act to the GI Bill, all of which were whites only, either in design or in practice. And then once it was opened up to all of Americans because of the civil rights movement, they began to cheer uh, the idea that those investments were somehow now um, suspect, that they would rather not have them go to their neighbor if it meant possibly that it would somehow cost them in the end in that relative status. I go back to the history. Where did this idea come from? Um, what I found was that it was a core way to sell a burgeoning society, including you know, the motley, motley nation of nations that was early colonial America, on the idea of stolen land, stolen labor, and stolen people, this idea that profit for white people, particularly the white you know, ruling class, would come very much at the expense of people of color. And so you had to sort of sell the opposite to the masses, the idea that any kind of justice or liberation or betterment of the lot of people of color would come at white people's expense. Yeah, I love your stuff on land. Uh, I'm going to quote you here again. Uh, the story of this country's rise from a starving colony to a world superpower is one that can't be told without the central character of race, specifically the creation of a racial hierarchy to justify the theft of indigenous land and the enslavement of African and indigenous people. Uh, this argument was actually supported, Heather, in uh, a, a, another guest we've had, another popular book this year, Simon Winchester's Land. He dedicates it to Chief Standing Bear, whose land he suggests was stolen in 19th century America. The issue of land, both metaphorically and literally, is central in your book. You talk about the subprime mortgage crisis and this whole idea of ownership and capitalism that was so profoundly tilted to whites in the 19th and indeed 20th century. Talk more about that. Yeah, I think it's really important that we recognize that um, so much of the United States formula for economic security has depended on ownership, has depended on um, the greatest and largest asset that families have, which is their home, which has become not just a place for shelter and hearth, but a speculative asset. And that was a formula that the United States deliberately created in a whites only manner. Um, you know, after before the New Deal, there really wasn't a lot of you know common people owning any kind of land. Um, and what we had was an intervention in creating the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, um, which was something that allowed you know really working people to suddenly, with um, very little money, be able to own real estate. And what the 
federal government did was that it drew maps of the entire country and drew circles around the neighborhoods where black people lived and said to banks, do not lend in those areas. Do not lend in those areas because the element in that area, the black people, the Negro element was a financial risk. Interestingly, they never substantiated that with any kind of quantitative analysis. It was just the assumption. Because they couldn't, right? I mean, it was it was based either on lies or myth. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, like so much of racism and white supremacy. And so, um, but what that meant was that you were creating, the federal government was creating a sort of unprecedented new ownership class out of working class people, and it was exclusive. And what that meant, Andrew, was that White people then, by the time the post-war sort of economic boom happened in the middle of the century, those benefits were somewhat invisible. It was just sort of natural that a bank would give you a loan. Um, it was sort of natural that you would have a subsidized housing development that was created by um, federal largesse, also on the condition of having racial covenants barring Black people from living in any of them. And so once that government, which had said, there is something so wrong with black people that they should not live in your neighborhood, should not go to your schools. Then somewhat on the turn of a dime in the 1960s then said, no, everybody should swim. Everybody should go to the same school. Now we're going to offer public benefits to black families as well. It was a betrayal. And in that moment in time is when you began to see a really sharp rightward shift among the American white American voting public. It was Lyndon B. Johnson who signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, was the last Democrat to win the majority of the white vote to this day. And our politics and our economy have been shaped by this zero-sum fear among white Americans. And it has created what I call the inequality era, this period of time where the middle class is shrinking, economic life is so much more insecure, and the Republican Party wins the majority of white votes, but all it delivers, even for working and middle-class white families that are struggling, is tax cuts for the wealthy and deregulation. Uh, you quote Du Bois, uh, one of our favorite authors, certainly 19th century authors uh, on, on in your book. You, you say, he, he of course wrote this in the late 19th century, there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently and who are so far, who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest. Those two groups, of course, according to Du Bois, are whites and blacks. And uh, you go on to argue that the Du Bois's observations are, if not even more true today, you write the word union itself seems to be a dog whistle in the South, code for undeserving people of color who need a union to compensate for some flaw in their character. This mm. issue, Heather, of unions has been a, a persistent theme in our show. Earlier this week, we had Sarah Horowitz has a new book, Mutualism. I think your two books go very well together of the importance of unions. Why are unions in your mind so both the problem and the solution to what's happening in America today? I have a chapter in The Some of Us on unions called No One Fights Alone. And it really goes to the heart of the counter to the zero sum, the idea that we are in fact not in stark competition from one another. That's, that's the boss's strategy, plain and simple. But that if we link arms together as people who are united in, in struggle, 
um, we can unlock these solidarity dividends for everyone. So I travel to Mississippi in the book. The book is includes a, a lot of stories of, of going to places and talking to Americans about their lives. I traveled to Canton, Mississippi, where a union drive with United Auto Workers at a Nissan car factory has just failed, and it was largely along racial lines. And um, a worker there named Joey said to me, you know, plain and simple, the white mentality is even though having a union would allow them to have higher wages and better health care and pensions and more say on safety measures, I ain't voting yes if the blacks are for it. If the blacks are for it, I'm against it, he says. You know, it's that clear zero sum. The Another ultimate uh, zero sum game, right? And of course, everybody loses. But as Du Bois said in Black Reconstruction in the South, which is a book that I brought with me on my trip to Mississippi um, and have read uh, you know, countless times, um, you know, he said there is a psychological wage of whiteness. And I definitely saw that in my conversations with the workers, black, white management uh, folks on the line saying that it was better to be white in this plan. You did have a sort of buddy-buddy system with the white management. Now, no workers had a union representation, but there was a sense that the union meant equality and equality meant the possibility of giving up the privileges of whiteness. Now, my contention in the book is that if we did not have this harsh and brutal racial hierarchy and this harsh and brutal class hierarchy, people wouldn't be so averse to falling one layer of um, one rung on the ladder lower because they we would not have such a harsh bottom. Right. We would not have a society in which you are one paycheck away from homelessness. We would not have a society in which you go bankrupt if you get a disease. And so it's that kind of risk. It's that kind of threat of falling, that fear of falling that makes white people cling to the advantages that are sort of, you know, tossed out as crumbs in many ways uh, by a ruling white elite. But what I also found is that there are signs of ways that we can break out of this zero sum with mutual benefit for all. I think Freud argued, and if he didn't, I'm, it's a good story. Freud argued <laughs> that uh, nightmares, he, Freud only analyzed white night, nightmares. There sure. was always a connection between fear of falling and water. And there's a lot of water in your book, Heather. This, <laughs> this, this, this metaphor of swimming pools, uh, you <laughs> talked about it earlier. As I said, here we have an image of a public swimming pool from the middle of the 20th century. You begin the book in Montgomery, Alabama is actually a place I was married. My first marriage didn't work out. Maybe it was because I got married there, not in the swimming pool. What is it about swimming pools and, and the failure of public swimming pools that uh, threads your argument together? It is really the, the central parable at the heart of the book. Um, you know, we we have, because we've lost so much sense of the public good and, and the commons in the United States, sometimes it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that government can and should do for people. But this very concrete symbol of a public pool, a place where young people could go and spend the whole day in the summer, a place where people could meet and fall in love, a place where before air conditioning, you could you know meet the public health needs of, of cooling off. 
was just a small symbol of the type of government largesse that was the, the, the public vision during the New Deal era through to the late 1950s and early 1960s. And the fact that we lost those public pools, there are obviously still some public pools, but not nearly the sort of era of the grand resort style pool like in that image is gone. Um, and, and racism did it in. The fact that we are no longer to able to count on that kind of government largesse, that kind of government commitment to a high quality of life, the fact that you basically get to swim if you have enough money to belong to a private club or if you have a house with a backyard pool is for me a very clear example of the way in which racism has a cost for everyone. Um, I have here on my desk, one of the little acorns from the park in Montgomery, Alabama. Here, I'll hold it in this hand. Um, no. One of the acorns in the park from Montgomery, Alabama, which is called Oak Park. Um, and when I, when I went there, um, actually for the second time, I gathered a handful of the acorns just to remind myself of how, how recent it was how these these phenomena can kind of regenerate and seed themselves if we don't if we're not aware of our history. Um, they closed that park, Oak Park. They not only filled in the pool and you know closed it, but they closed the entire Parks and Recreation Department of the City of Montgomery for a decade, rather than integrate it. Catastrophic. Um, the one of the headlines uh, about the Texas crisis this week is saying. The damage from, from, from this is worse than Katrina. And of course, Katrina was a water crisis. You touched on water crises earlier. We had David Hardin on the show, wrote a book about the water crisis in Flint. Uh, we've had, uh, I'm sure you know her, Erin Brockovich, uh, about our water crisis in the environment. It seems as if one of the major, if not the major casualty of the crisis of public infrastructure is the environment. You have a whole chapter on this. How is this playing out and, 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 and how high is it, is it in, in your hierarchy of, of crises? I mean, it's everything, isn't it? You know, climate is everything. Our ability to breathe clean air and to drink water that won't poison us is everything. And I honestly, you know, my background's in economic policy. I'm not an environmental scientist or an environmental activist even. And so I, I did not set out to include a chapter on the environment in the Some of Us, but, you know, I just had my son um, and he was three weeks old when the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report uh, saying that we had 12 years to act came out. And I said, you know, how is it possible that this country, responsible for the largest amount of carbon in the atmosphere, um, is so resistant to addressing this problem with many, in many cases, with solutions we invented? How is it possible? And as it turns out, racism plays an extraordinary role. You know, our, the United States is the only country where the conservative party not only, you know, wants sort of market-based solutions, to the crisis of climate change, but largely denies that it is a problem and largely denies um, that we can do anything about it as human beings. And that's just, it's insane. It's insane. It's a level of self-sabotage that is, you know, the ultimate self-sabotage. And, it's, and it's, so, it's, it's a catastrophic self-sabotage because they're sabotaging the rest of the world as well. That's exactly right. And, and so I talked to a bunch of social scientists who basically connected the dots for me. Um, they said that it's that 
um, white men and conservative white men are much more likely to be climate deniers than, than all other groups. And that what it comes down to is not, you know, sort of biology. It comes down to the worldview that is taught to white men and that they tend to believe, which is that they have been on top of a hierarchy for so long that they want to justify the system as it currently is. And they are not only resistant to any kind of system change, which climate change solutions could, could, could create, but they're also play down risk because they feel like we've always been sort of immune to the risk. This is gonna be a problem that impacts, frankly, the type of people who've always been hurt, the type of resources we've always exploited, animals, you know, the environment, women, people in developing nations, brown and black people. You know, there's just a sense of this isn't going to affect me. And if it does, it's not such a big deal. And it's certainly not worth upending the current economic system in order to do something about it. And yet, as my book shows, you know, the name of that chapter is called The Same Sky. They live under the same sky. The, the people, the white people, conservatives in Texas are without heat and without water. Racism always hurts the target first and worst. It always is going to hit minority neighborhoods, especially hard as that New York Times um, article that you just showed um, reveals. And yet it's folly to think that these sort of environmental sacrifice zones that we have, that there isn't going to be spillover from them. And that if we use this racist logic of hyper-capitalism and hyper-individualism to destroy our public goods, that ultimately everybody in the public won't pay a cost. And with the environment, it's the most dire cost there is. Okay, Heather. Well, the question everyone's going to be asking now, having heard all this, is what are we going to do about it? Yes. Um, and, and, and your book deals with that a lot. You, you quote Lee Atwater, the, the famous Republican or the infamous uh, <laughs> Republican political strategist who used racism. It wasn't the nigger, nigger, nigger thing that was used in 1954. Those are his words, by the way, not mine. Uh, but you can't say that anymore, he said. You, 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 you talk about other things. That was used very successfully by Ronald Reagan. Rick Perlstein was on the show. We mm. had Carol Anderson, who I'm sure worked, I'm sure you know Carol, wonderful thinker and activist. Is the fix, not Carol, is the fix, uh, Heather, through politics? Do mm. we need to work with people like Carolyn in Atlanta uh, and, and everybody else to just simply fix the, the political system to fight? the Atwaters and the Limbaugh's and the Trumps of this world? Politics has been the route, right? It, it was a political transformation in white consciousness from being New Deal Democrats to free market Republicans um, that changed the course of American economic history, that drained the pool, that turned their back on the kind of collective action, whether through labor unions or through government, that ensures the kinds of high living standards for everyone, but would put them shoulder to shoulder with the people they'd been taught to disdain and distrust. So yes, the route does have to go through politics, but ultimately politics is just the expression of underlying beliefs. And everything that we believe comes from a story we've been told. And when you, I, I really love that you brought in Rush Limbaugh to set the conversation because, you know, Donald Trump is, you know, a creature from the swamp that 
Fox News and right wing radio created, you know, nearly a generation before Donald Trump burst into politics. So as long as we have a relentless zero sum story being preached to white men as part of their identity, then we are going to have this kind of um, racial resentment, which I think is the sort of real unexplained factor in our politics and our economy. Thankfully, I was able to see in almost every single chapter and every single sort of place I went and, and issue of society that I tried to unpack, the opposite of the zero sum and an example of it. Um, and I began to call that the solidarity dividend, the idea of these gains that we can unlock when we work together across lines of race and particularly when white people reject the zero sum mentality. I talked to a white worker named Bridget, this young woman from Kansas City who was a fast food worker making minimum wage. She had totally bought the sort of us versus them, anti-immigrant, you know, inner city crime, uh, worldview. Um, was that the ex-Nazi or was that another story? <laughs> that was a different story. That was a different story. That was Angela. Um, no, Bridget is a, is a, is a worker. It's the only one called Karen, right? Um, Bridget is a worker who, um, who ended up organizing. And I think organizing is really the key. Politics is a route for organizing in the sense that people do, you know, start organizing and knocking on doors and making phone calls and get involved with one another in order to elect candidates. But they also have to do that to clean up their air. They also have to do that to, to get a ballot initiative to raise wages or get a, a ballot initiative or a city council vote to have more health care for their neighbors. And I really did see that people like Bridget, if they were moved into common cause and started organizing with people who were having their same struggles, but who were black and brown, were able to reject the zero sum. In Bridget's own words, she said, you know, it's not a matter of us versus them. I can't come up if they can't come up. As long as we're divided, we're conquered. I have to admit, Heather, that I love the book, but that was the least convincing part because it was anecdotal and you can always find people who have um, changed their ways. Uh, I'm curious, there was a, a, your book's got great response. Uh, Michelle Goldberg, a unabashed progressive in the New York Times said, this is the book that should change how progressives talk about race. We've talked a lot with progressives about this split, I think, between what you might think of as the managerial class and a new left laid out by people like Michael Lind and Thomas Frank. Tell me something in your book that, and, and, and you used to run uh, Demos, mm -hmm. uh, so you're, a, you're, a, you're, you're someone very experienced in the politics and culture of progressives. Mm -hmm. Tell me something in your book or your message in the book that will piss off progressives. <laughs> what do progressives need to learn from the book? Because sometimes these books yeah. are just grist to the mill of progressives yeah. saying, oh yeah, we knew all this and we're blaming Limbo and Trump and Reagan yep. and Lee Atwater. But what is it that progressives have to change to fix this problem? Um, I think I think there are two groups of uh, maybe I'm going to answer your question about progressives and I'm also going to talk about sort of the socially liberal, fiscally conservative white people, which is an even bigger group of white well, you people. You went to school with in your, in your uh, was it your, your fancy boarding school in? Yes, uh, was it exactly. Or, or? 
Exactly. Um, so white progressives, I think Michelle Goldberg's column, you know, really talks about them maybe even more than I do in my book. But um, but the idea there is that white progressives tend to either do one of two things. One, they either they want to just do colorblind economic populist solutions, right? And and colorblind economic populist rhetoric, um, where it's like if we just do universal things, if we just talk about you know the one percent and the ninety nine percent, then we will be able to reach white people on their own self interest. The fact is, you know, the white people who have turned away from class politics are fully aware that the story is about race. They're getting the race story from the right all the time. So if the left is silent about race, then it's just an asymmetric warfare and it doesn't actually count because there's something so much more visceral and compelling about these questions of identity, even than something as abstract as maybe, maybe a bunch of public decisions could change how you know my economic situation is. People are so individualistic. They think it's their own uh, responsibility to, to improve their own lives. Um, and that there's nothing sort of government can do. Second, the other side of the white progressive uh, sort of instinct is often to then, you know, really cleave to racial justice, to um, really talk about the advantages of racism to white people, talk about white privilege, talk about the need, um, you know, to to basically, you know, center black and brown people, all of that that is very much um, you know, part of this sort of consciousness raising moment that's happening. And yet so often when we communicate about racism to a broader audience and we just talk about the privileges of whiteness, we are actually buying, um, sort of communicating the deeper paradigmatic story underneath is also that zero sum, right? It's saying that white people have all these advantages, black and brown people do not. And as Michelle Goldberg says, you know, I, she thinks that that's sort of, thinking a lot of white people to think that you can sort of enumerate all the ways it's great to be white and that they'll want to sort of voluntarily give all them up. Um, and so what this offers is a little bit of, you know, needling to both sides that says we have to both absolutely refill the pool for everyone. We have to not be afraid to- Swimming refill. pool, that, the, the swimming yeah, pool, of course. The swimming pool, but the pool of resources as well. The public pool, the public the pool. Public pool. Um, we have to refill the public pool for everyone. But we also have to do so in a way that calls out the zero sum story and tries not to, you know, subtly and even unconsciously reify the zero sum sense of us versus them um, and and a fixed pie. Zero sum, of course, runs through the book. Um, the the image that was used in the Goldberg piece in the uh, in the Times was this mm. iconic, troubling, you know, the ultimate irony of, of uh, unemployed African-Americans queuing in front of uh, a poster of the world's highest standard of living. There's no way like the American way. Oddly enough, uh, or perhaps not so oddly enough, Heather, the book is deeply American. It's positive. But what happens if all Americans, black, white, brown, orange, they're all going to be in that line? What happens if America is just in profound decline? You seem to be generally optimistic and the book itself is a is a narrative it's a travelogue of your experience in america it makes you if anything ironically enough more american at the end than when you began is that fair <laughs> did it make you more american at the end i am not american as you can tell um i am yes i was talking to some uh, black man the other day who said there's nobody more patriotic than black women <laughs> i, I so think weird. that's true actually 
because uh, yeah, that's another that's a, the subject of another show. But anyway, I you know I grew up in the Midwest. I do have this sort of odd, perhaps, for you know a leftist uh, and someone who's very steeped in the brutality of American life um, and the cruelty of it. Um, I do have a sense of hope and possibility for this country. Um, I do believe that its ideals mapped onto what is quickly becoming this large, rich nation with no racial majority could make for a new world. If we really do jettison the idea of racial hierarchy that was handed to us at the birth of the United States um, and realize that perhaps the proximity of all this human difference um, could reveal our common humanity, then I think the sky is the limit. We are a young country. I do feel a sense of ownership in it, right? My people, the you know, I'm the descendant of enslaved people in the United States, and we've sacrificed every last thing to America's becoming. And so, yes, I want to stay here and fight for it and for all of her people. I do believe that there is something not exceptional about the United States by any means, but I do think that there is still something possible in the United States if we can truly let go of what is so foolish and unsubstantiated, as you say, which is this racial hierarchy, this, this white supremacy, this belief that some groups of people are better than others. Um, then we can actually be, you know, the city on the hill that we were supposed to be, and we never were. Well, what is certainly exceptional is that America is able to produce writers like oh. Heather McGee with wonderful new books, The Sum of Us, essential reading for anyone. Uh, it is perhaps the book of, uh, of, of, uh, of February 2021. In addition, Heather, what else should people be reading in these strange times? I know you're, seems like everyone I'm I'm, everyone I'm interviewing is in Brooklyn, New York. Is it just full of best-selling authors like you? Is that what Brooklyn's like? You know, a tree grows in Brooklyn, paper words. I don't know. I mean, it's, it is a, a little village here, and people have sort of hunkered down for the pandemic. And well, I'm in the uh, Brooklyn of the West Coast, Berkeley. We're trying to catch <laughs> up with you. But uh, what else should people be reading? Well, first of all, thank you, Andrew, for saying all those really kind things about me. I'm a first-time author. I still feel a little bit... Um, dazed by this four days of, of my book coming out in the world and it being not just a conversation of one. Um, the book that I am reading right now is um, right here. It's called Speak Now Against the Day, the Generation Before the Civil Rights Movement in the South by John Egerton. And I think it's just such a fascinating reported history full of oral history of people before there was a sense of any hope, like in the depth of uh, you know, white supremacy and Jim Crow and people white and black who who dare to see another way being possible. I think it's important to remember what it's like when you're in the absolute depths of darkness. Um, and then another book that I just read last night is a good night book to my son is a book called The Word Collector by Peter Reynolds. It's uh, it's so beautiful. It's a, you know, it's a board book. My son is too. Um, it's a great children's book about a, a little black boy who loves words and collects words. Well, Heather McGee, congratulations again. Real honor to have you on the show. And you have to come back, talk more about swimming pools and children's stories and all sorts of other things. Thank you so much. All right. Take good care. Be safe. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure 
to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.